invite you to be seated, and I'll invite Richard and Prentice up. They are going to lead us uh, together tonight in a conversation uh, around glory. Prentice. Richard, how are you? Good, Betty. How are you? Good, good to, to see you, man. Good happy, to see you. Happy Friday to you. Happy, happy Friday. It's a, it's a good Friday. Very good. Anybody? Very good. How are things over in West Seattle, man? West Seattle's going fantastic. Any West Seattle folks in here? Okay. Most of them came to the earlier <laughs> there one. There were several. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. Hey, so um, wanted to get your thoughts here because we're it's Good Friday, of course, and we had text that we're looking at this evening, and I'm just intrigued with this thought about glory and what yeah. glory means. So let's let's just start there. Yeah, well, as you know, we've been talking about glory, and we've been seeing a lot of glory in John uh, chapter 12. Uh, but before we even get in there, it, it's so important for, as you know, to, to understand this whole idea of glory and what it means to be glorified and glorious, especially through the lens of this audience, this context of the first century Judaism. Hmm. And so, well, let me just start off by reading just a few verses in John chapter 12, uh, starting from verse 20, it says this. It says, Now uh, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some, uh, festival were some Greeks. Uh, they came to Philip, who was at Bethesda in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered. And this is really the most important part. Jesus says, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, glory. Glory. Touchdown. Again. We yeah. win. We win. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, the, the important part is for us to understand, well, what, what was John, what was Jesus, what were they talking about when they were talking about being glorified? Uh, and, and we have to understand the, the first century, going all the way back to the Old Testament in this Jewish framework where the word glory actually is this Hebrew word, uh, kavod. Okay. Uh, and, and kavod literally means something being heavy, like literally something heavy, something with, with weight, because they believed that if something had weight, if it was actually heavy, it actually also had uh, a value and worth. And it was very, it's seen as something very impressive. And so, Richard, for example, something heavy having worth. Like, what, what if I gave you uh, a gold necklace of some sort, like gold? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That's very nice. Uh, and, and as we know, gold is one of the heavier metals. No, you're right. You put it in my hand and have. you feel it and it, it, it's, it's weighty. Exactly. I'd use, I'd use the word weighty. Yeah. yeah. So if I put it in your hand and it felt heavy, you would automatically think. It has value. Exactly. Yeah. And so if I asked you to open up your other hand and I gave you fake gold, Right. It was probably it would be probably much lighter. Yep. yep. Uh, and that would indicate less worth and, and, and less worthy. And, and so throughout the whole Old Testament, this Jewish mindset, glory represented uh, something that was heavy and uh, and with weight, equated that with wealth and, and with even position and, and even further uh, reputation. So this, mm. the the whole idea of glory. Was, was wealth, position, and reputation. And in the New Testament, where we are today, uh, they carry that idea of kavod, glory, over, and, and they call it this word doxa. Doxology comes right. from that. So we've done right. doxologies yeah. Yeah. before. Uh, and again, carrying that concept over from the Hebrew, uh, the original word in Greek, doxa, meant to honor. Uh, 
Okay. And, and, and reputation. So I think of up here, exactly. not down here. Yeah. And, and both in the Jewish context, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when they talked about glory, it was something that was up here, honorable, reputable, mm-hmm. wealthy, uh, impressive. Uh, and, and this is important because this is a very shame and honor-based society uh, and culture. Uh, and during this time, the Jewish people, they were under massive oppression under the rule of the Roman Empire. Uh, and being under this rule of Roman Empire didn't bring glory, didn't right. bring honor. As a matter of fact, in a shame and honor context, it was the very opposite. Oh, yeah. They've it, lost their land. They, they lost everything. The temple's been destroyed. They've lost their national identity. Yeah. It, and they were brought shame, massive amounts uh, of shame because honor was actually oftentimes linked to the progress of their Jewish nation. And under the oppression and marginalization, not only were they not moving forward in progress, but they were actually moving backwards. They were oppressed. They were marginalized. These Jewish people, they were treated like second-class citizens Hmm. in their own hometown, uh, in their own home place. They were considered as the outsiders and the outcasts. And they believed that... Under this oppression, still a Messiah, a Savior would come to rescue them. Right. Now, now here's the deal. When they thought about this Messiah, warrior, judge-like person, they expected someone to come in power uh, and and to turn their shame into honor. So like someone of military force, of warrior-type force to come in and literally to crush the enemies. By making the Jewish nation powerful Hmm. again, by vindicating the suffering of the people, by regaining land and wealth and all these positions, uh, and having great reputation amongst all the people. So you think about like a muscular warrior, a king, or somebody, you know, with a lot of weapons who's going to come in and really make it happen. Yeah, that's exactly who they were hoping for. And they thought that the Old Testament was saying that that was the person that was going to come and rescue them and bring them to glory. Because right now they were living in shame, being oppressed by the Roman Empire. So they're like, come and save us uh, in in a particular particular way. And so uh, a few verses before we remember that Jesus rides, comes into Jerusalem in a donkey. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Uh, and we call that the triumphal entry. And these people, they shouted. Remember what they shouted? Uh, Hosanna. Yeah. Right? They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And I know oftentimes we sing these songs, Hosanna, and we say this really these words of, of, of Hosanna. But what Hosanna really meant was save us. So when we sing Hosanna, it's this imperative. It's this, God, will you please save us? And so when Jesus was coming in and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, they were literally asking Jesus to save them from this shame of being under oppression of the Roman Empire. Because they believed, they believed that the same Jesus that had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead right. would also have the same power to redeem that nation under their, their oppressors. It's a conventional definition of glory during this time was defined always as power of material worth, of wealth, of strength, of status. And so for these Jews, uh, they were expecting Jesus coming in on a donkey uh, to bring them earthly deliverance. So they shout... They shout, uh, Hosanna, and uh, uh, then these guys go to Jesus and say, 
hey, Jesus, everybody's coming to see you, right? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, they're excited. The disciples are excited. Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So I'm guessing then that the disciples, uh, uh, their emotive response to that statement is, if this is Jesus' hour, he's coming up. Right. He's Like he's going to. He's going to come out of the closet, so to speak, and name his messiahship and his power and his deity. And he's not just going to name it. He's going to exercise it. Boom. Yeah. You know, we're going to get rid of the Romans and we're going to be free. And, you know, we were down. We're going to, we were, now we're up. We were the losers. Now we're the winners. It's a shame thing. And in a shame honor culture, this is a big, big deal. So they're, they're actually really excited until the very next verse. And the next verse is hysterical to me because Jesus then, with this notion of glory being ascendancy and power, then Jesus defines glory in verse 24, a little bit mystically using a, a, a bit of a word picture. But this is what he says. Time to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Mm. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That is not what I would have expected to come out of Jesus' mouth. In the the wake of, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, I would have wanted to hear, so get your swords. Right. And I've got some weapons you guys don't even know about, and, you know, we're going to win, right? And instead, he says... Oh, let me tell you something. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what Jesus is doing here is he's totally redefining glory. He's deconstructing their notion that glory is ascendancy. And he is saying life comes always on the far side of death. And this is not a definition of glory in any dictionary in the world to this day. I mean, if you look at Webster's and you look at glory, it, it has, there's nothing about dying. There's nothing about going down. There's nothing about emptying. There's nothing about humility. But Jesus says, this is the path to glory. The path to glory always entails death. And of course, Jesus is referring to his own life. And when Jesus illustrates this in verse 24, he was a grain of wheat. But since we're on the West Coast and since I'm from California, I'm going to sh- explain this by talking about a redwood tree, yeah. Okay. So this, this is my attempt so far at a bonsai redwood tree, right? <laughs> now, you have no way of knowing this, but uh, the redwood trees are actually the largest species of tree on the planet. And you haven't been out of California, Santa Cruz, just south of San Francisco, where all these amazing trees are. But uh, there's one park, Henry Cowell Redwood Park. They've sliced a piece of a redwood tree off and it's like 15 feet in diameter, wow. like you draw a line through. And they show events in the rings of the tree, the age of the tree, all the way back to the birth of Christ that's 2,000 yeah. years old. So these trees, are, these trees are enormous, right? Now, this particular tree here has kind of an interesting history. Back in the 80s, pardon me while I fix this, back in the 80s, my, uh, my mother-in-law got, got a little redwood tree at at a school carnival for one of her grandkids who lives in the Bay Area. And uh, so it was about an inch tall, this redwood tree. They, she and her husband planted in Anacortes, 1987 or so. 1990, my wife and I moved from Friday Harbor to East Mount Vernon up in the mountains. And we asked if we could have the redwood tree because they were going to sell their house. Yeah. So we took the redwood tree to the mountains, planted it, and, but when we took it, it was probably three feet tall or something, four maybe. We planted it in the mountains, and with more rain, it did even better. It grew pretty quickly. It was like 10 or 11 feet tall when, end of 1995, I moved to Seattle, to Bethany, right? So when we moved, Don and I said, 
what should we do with this tree? We love this tree because it's got a lot of history. So we decided to um, try and move it with us, right? So we got a big truck and we dug this tree up. By now, it's like 10 or 11 feet tall. We take it, we plant it in the house that we lived at here in Seattle for 20 years. And um, that tree now, I'll go show it to you sometime very soon. But that tree's like it's 45 feet tall. It's grown that, it's grown that large. And, and, then, and then we sold our house. And when we sold our house, I was like, man, I don't think I can move that tree anymore, <laughs> right? So I'm looking down at the ground. I'm kind of sad about it. And then I see, oh, there's a tree. So about an inch tall. So I took that tree, planted it, or I put it in a cup, and, and uh, took it to the mountains, but we can't, we're, all the snow, we can't have it there. So that's this tree. But what's so amazing to me is redwood, like, you've seen pine cones. They're about this big, right? Yeah. A redwood cone isn't any bigger than the tip of my finger, and oh. it's got a bunch of seeds in it. The seeds are tiny, and I've seen the trees that are over 300 feet tall, right? So I go, it just is so fascinating to me that this tiny seed has all this potential for life. And what Jesus is saying here is, yes, this seed has potential, but the potential in this seed for life, the potential to become a tree that will bless the forest, bless the birds of the air, bless humanity, all that potential is wrapped in the seed, but the, the seed will never reach its potential without first what? Dying. And so this glory to which Jesus is inviting us and of which Jesus is speaking... Of necessity, there has to be this humiliation, this undoing, this falling of the earth and dying. And so the real glory and potential are actually only realized on the far side of the seed falling on the ground and dying. It's an amazing, entirely redefining of glory. Yeah. So I think we've got to ponder that for a couple of minutes yeah. while, we, while we sing. Richard, good seeing you again. You too, man. <laughs> turn this on. Well, what do you think after that discussion about the seeds? Yeah, well, you know what? One thing that I really have been appreciating uh, through this whole conversation uh, in, in a better understanding of, of seed and, and, and being buried that equated death, one thing I'm realizing, and I'm sure we all do, is that uh, that analogy, that parable was talking about Jesus' own death. He had to die. In, in contrary to conventional uh, definition of glory, Jesus is showing us that the pathway to glory is not through physical strength, it's not through military power, it's not through destruction of, of their enemies as they commonly thought and wanted, but it's the very opposite, in fact. It actually requires death, much like the seed that was buried into the, into the ground. Well. And so see, the way of Jesus... Uh, it, through that illustration, and really his entire life uh, is, is really radical. It's this upside-down way of thinking that's oftentimes antithetical to, to their cultural norms and any expectations that they had. Uh, it, for example, Jesus would say things like, it's the last that will be first. It's the poor that will be rich. It's the weak that will be powerful. And again here, it's death. That will bring glory. Humble yourself and be exalted. Yeah. Same thing, yeah. And there's so much more. And, and the problem is, I really believe, Richard, yourself, myself, us as a community, uh, we fall to this uh, in the same way today. We ultimately define glory by the standards of our culture and those expectations. Uh, maybe it's getting the perfect job. Maybe it's getting into the perfect college or school and 
or having the perfect kids, maybe it's upward mobility, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's material possessions, wealth, status, whatever it is. And, and to make matters worse, and I really believe this, especially here in the West, that we all are believed to, that we need to be winners, that we have to be winners. Now, now, the way we think of that and process that is that if we need to be winners, if we are the winners, then there has to be a loser. And we have this urge to be right, and I know I can speak for myself, I always have the urge to be right. Uh, and if there's an urge to be right, then somebody must be wrong. Uh, or we have the fight to have power, uh, and for someone to have power, then somebody else has to be weak. Yeah. And so Jesus comes and kind of flips that whole thing upside down. And again, he comes in not in a big stallion or a horse or a colt. He comes in on a donkey. <laughs> and not only that, he, he ends up washing the disgusting feet of his friends. Uh, and ultimately, he dies on a shameful cross amongst thieves. Next and all this, it looks so... Uh antithetical to everything that we think of as glory. Exactly. And Jesus flips it, redefines it upside down. And in verse 25, and I'll just read it, it says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then it says, uh, those, who th those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, I really believe this, Richard. I believe that that wasn't just a declaration, but it was actually an invitation for all of his hearers and, and even us today that Jesus invites us, you, me, the whole congregation here, to see Jesus' death, the death actually as a true means to glory. Hmm. Not, not anything else, not the things that they were taught or talked about, but it's through death, like that illustration. Yeah. And it's through that, and it's only through that, and it's only through surrendering into that death that we can actually experience the fullness of life, the life that God has called us to live, that God, the, the, the kind of life that God has promised us, even in John 10, 10, not just breathing, not just that kind of life, but a life that is abundant. It is through actually death. It's through death. But it's totally counterintuitive because I don't, uh, when I think of... Uh what makes my life meaningful, I do think I want to strive to get to the top. And even with respect to my spirituality, yeah. I go, if I, if I do the right thing, say the right thing, pray the right thing, give enough, strive enough, I'll Glory. climb. Yeah. yeah. Rather than some kind of a casting all my hope onto Christ, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And what Jesus is saying, even through all this, is that it can't be earned. None of that. I mean, we all do that. It, it can't be earned. We can't strive for it. We can't work for it. And, and if you or anyone here is like me, we've tried it. We've tried it all every single day. And it's exhausting. And it's so exhausting. I really do love this part. When Jesus is on the cross, he says these words. He says, right before he dies, he says, it is finished. In other words, I really believe Jesus is saying, uh, enough already, enough of trying, enough of striving, enough of doing, enough of trying to achieve. Jesus on that cross put that to death and says, enough already, I've taken care of it here on that cross. He says, through my death, you, myself, us, vicariously, 
uh, through me have put to death sin, evil, shame, and whatever it is that hinders us from experiencing that kind of life that God calls us to live and to have. See, it's through, uh, Jesus says, it's through my death, you no longer have to perform, no longer have to do things to, to be in right relationship with God. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, he says the practice of sacrifice is no longer necessary because, the pra- because of the sacrifice of Jesus was perfect and it was enough. And as a matter of fact, it was more than hmm. enough. And so we can find rest in that. Hmm. And so the question on the table for, for you, for me, for all of us is this, what's it going to be? Who or what will we follow? Will we follow after the things of this world that will ultimately lead to death, ironically? Or will we follow the one who defeats death so we can experience the fullness of life, not only now and forever? And, and so I, what I want to do is pick up on two words that you said. You said the word follow and you said the word vicarious. And vicarious, I don't know if everybody knows what it means, but it's kind of this notion that... Um, I'm, I'm enjoying the benefits of what somebody else is doing. Right. We, we go to a baseball game, and we're not really playing, but we cheer anyway, and we're kind of, oh, we won, and we didn't yeah. actually do anything. Vicariously. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. We, we can't won. say that as Mariners fans these days. But, no, no, yeah. no. Yeah. So uh, we'll pick up on those words because I think when Jesus is talking here, even in verse 25 where, where he says, he who loves his life loses it, he who hates his life, he, he, he's been... Uh, hinting, at the least, of his own identity and his own destiny, his own future. And so if I'm a disciple, I'm listening to this, I go, oh man, is Jesus saying he's going to die? And then, and then when he says he who loves his life loses it, they're like this, I think Jesus is going to die. Yeah. And then, of course, he does die. And, and, and the danger here at a level is had Jesus stopped at verse 25, the message would have been, wow, he died for me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, he did. That's just what you've been saying. He did die for us. Death is the path to glory. But verse 26 uh, kind of expands the, the conversation. And it's like he holds a mirror up to the disciples and says, now, we've, we've talked about my destiny. Let's talk about your destiny, right? Because then in verse 26, this is what he says. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so this is, there's a statement there. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is amazing to yeah. me because here's Jesus going, look, the pathway to glory is death. The disciples are thinking, oh, okay. And then Jesus says, if you love your life, you lose it. If you, if you lose your life, you find it. Oh, okay. Uh, man, is Jesus going to die for us? Is that like, is this a whole new definition of glory for Jesus? And honestly, I sometimes think that as evangelicals, Mm -hmm. we stop there and we go, isn't it great that Jesus suffered for me? Subtext that isn't in the Bible, so I don't have to. Isn't it great that he died, so I don't have to? Isn't it great that he was humiliated, so I don't have to be humiliated? And so we're thinking that Jesus' definition of glory allows us to enjoy the human definition of glory. Like he did all the bad stuff, I don't have to. But in verse 26, he says, wait a minute, 
I'm telling you, if you want to be a disciple, you have to follow me. If you're going to serve me, you have to follow me. And this is stunning because rather than ending the conversation by hinting at his own death, Jesus says, this dying is not just for me, this is for you too, right? And so on the night when Jesus met with the disciples, what we'll do in just a minute here, like he took the bread, he broke the bread, and in breaking the bread, uh, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples, of course, were with Jesus when he multiplied a bunch of loaves in John chapter 6, fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. And in that chapter, Jesus said, look, uh, unless, this is my flesh. My, my, my flesh is true bread. And then he says, unless you eat of my flesh, you have no part of me. So when Jesus says, this bread is my body, remember me, yes, remember. In the future, you'll look back and remember that I died for you, yes. But for those disciples, what are they remembering? They're remembering that this, this bread is actually an invitation to follow me, to partake of all that I am. And so what Jesus is saying is, if I have a path of self-denial and you're following me, you have a path of self-denial. If I have a path of relinquishing my rights, then if you're following me, you have a path of relinquishing your rights. If I have a path of laying down my life, you have a path of laying down your life. And we don't like this message. We, we like what Jesus did for us, but then we want to go on and solve our own problems with the human de definition of glory by, by resorting to violence, by resorting uh, to kind of xenophobia and fear and hate and boom, I'm right. Oh, I win. No, I don't win. The only way I win is by following Jesus. And if I'm, if I'm living in union with Christ, the, the profound thing that happens is from the day that Jesus was born until he died, he had one passion, the will of the Father. And, and so, like, later this night in the garden, he'll sweat drops of blood, he'll say, I don't want the cross, I don't want the cross. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but the Father's. That's the seed falling on the ground and dying. And then Jesus is saying, that's, listen, yes, it's for you, but it's not just for you, it's an invitation for you to live in such union with me that you too are the seed yeah. that dies, so that you can know the life for which you're created. So I just think this is amazing. So that when we come to this table, what we'll do is not only remember with gratitude what Jesus did for us, but Paul will say, you know, every time you come to this table, examine yourself to see not if you're living vicariously, but if you're living in union. Because only in union will we, will we be able to like, achieve this potential that God has for each of us. I think of these redwood trees that are gigantic and everyone began this way, but it died. And this is, the, this is the call as we live in union with Christ. Shall we go do this? Yeah. Before we do that, can we pray? Let's do it. God, we thank you so much for tonight, Good Friday, the night that you put yourself on that cross on our behalf. And so, God, tonight as we come to this table, we, may we recognize that, may we honor that, may we celebrate that and know that it's through your death that we can experience the fullness of life. So God, may we uh, dismantle the definition of glory and hold on tight to, to the glory that you bring us. And may we not just live vicariously through that, but to actually live that out in our lives every single day. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for this week. And we anticipate this Sunday where your love and your resurrection conquers. In your name we pray, amen.